0: Amen. Guys, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for the sermon text this morning. We are going to be together in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is God's holy word for us today. far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's holy word for us today. Let's ask him to... Bless the reading and now especially the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. May the unfolding of Your Word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed and reformed in Your wisdom and truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower now the preaching of Your Word, that it may accomplish the purpose for which You sent it, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're over the halfway point now in our October Reformation Month series on the five solos. We've done three. This week we have number four. And remember what we're doing is we're trying to remember and celebrate the things that we believe, the core, central fundamentally important things we believe, because we don't want to just be Presbyterian or be Protestant because it's comfortable or convenient or what we're used to. It's not just a matter of taste. We want it to be a matter of conviction. We want to really understand where we stand. And we do that in a lot of ways, and one of them is we use the five Sundays of October to study together the five solas of the Reformation because that's the dividing line that makes us who we are. Now, we've studied three so far, sola scriptura, sola gratia, and sola fide. And this week, we come to the fourth sola, solus Christus, solus Christus, or Christ alone. Now, I haven't mentioned this before, but it's important to note this at this juncture, that each Of the solas is the Protestant answer to a specific question. So, Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura answers the question of theological authority. What is the inspired, infallible, supreme rule of faith for the church? Theological authority. Or, what is God's word to his church today? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola gratia. Sola gratia answers the question of salvation. How is salvation accomplished and applied? Answer, grace alone. Grace alone accomplishes and applies. Sola fide. Sola fide answers the question of justification. How are guilty sinners forgiven and justified before a holy God? What an amazingly important question since all of us find ourselves in this position. How do each one of us as sinners find a find justification? How do we find a holy God who can forgive and save in spite of our sin? How do we do that? How do sinners receive the salvation that grace alone has provided? What an important question that we covered last week. And the answer is faith alone. Faith alone. So, what does Solus Christus answer? And here it actually answers two questions. And most of the time, when you're reading a reading you know reading a book or reading a blog article or just researching online, Wikipedia or something, and you're wondering what does Solus Christus mean, usually, usually the, the sources you find will only focus on one of these two things. They hardly ever bring them together. Normally, we think solus Christus means Christ alone is our Savior, and that absolutely is crucially and biblically true. But that's not really the main thing that was being debated in the Reformation. Everybody believed Christ was the Savior. I mean, they're all Christians. The main question was this question of ecclesiastical authority. Theological authority is Scripture. Where do we get our faith? But now, what about as a church? Who's in charge around here? Who runs this thing? Who's at the top of the food chain in the church? So there's two questions that Solus Christus answers. The first question is that question of ecclesiastical authority. Who runs the church? Who is ultimately in charge of the church? In biblical terms, who is the head of the church? And then that second question, which is also very important, is the question of access to God. Access to God. How do you get to God? Where do you find God? How does God come to you? How does he get to you? How does he reach you? It's this question of the traffic between sinful humans and and a holy God. Where does the traffic flow? What lane does it have to go through? What's the one bridge that we have to cross to get to God and that He has to cross to get to us? It's a two-way bridge. It's that question of access to God. Who is the mediator in biblical terms? Who's the mediator between God and man? How can sinful creatures come to God? And then how can a holy God's favor and grace and mercy and blessing come to us? So who's in charge and who's directing the spiritual traffic in the church? Those those are the two questions we want to answer. And I'll go ahead and spoil it. Christ alone. Roll credits. Let's pray. (laughs) You wish. (laughs) In our passage this morning, Paul describes Christ in terms of his office as king of the ages. This is an exciting topic. Christ in his kingly royal glory, which should just excite that renewed heart that just loves to bow the knee to King Jesus. So let's do that. Let's just celebrate who Christ is this morning. I mean, we try to do that every week, but man, let's see him on his throne today. That's what we want to see, Christ as the head of the church and the only mediator we have so that we can get to God and he can get to us. Paul just lays it out for us in in great, great wonder. And as we're going to see, Scripture teaches that King Jesus alone is the mediator of redemption and the head of his church. Now, as we get into this text, our primary focus to answer these two questions that Solus Christus is meant to answer, the primary focus is going to be on verses 20 to 23. But if you notice verse 20, in the ESV anyways, I don't know about what Bible you're reading, but in the ESV, it just starts in the middle of a sentence, right? That he worked in Christ. And if we start there, we're not going to know what he's talking about. Verse 20 begins right in the middle of a sentence, so it's important, guys, when you're reading the Bible, a little, little tip for when you're doing your own personal Bible reading, devotional reading, or studying a passage of the Scriptures, it's really important, it's actually vitally important, to read the larger context so you can pick up the complete thought that Paul's communicating. Now, you wouldn't open a novel and just start mid-sentence and, and try to figure out what's happening. You would need to back up a little bit. Start at the beginning of the paragraph or something. See what's happening. Right? We, know, we only read the Bible this way. <laughs> start in the middle of a sentence. So back up. Start where the sentence starts or start where the paragraph starts. And when we do that in our context here, we need to back up to verse 15 at the start of the paragraph. But notice, as soon as you do that, what is ver- how does verse 15 start? It says for this reason. Okay, so it's the beginning of the sentence, but it's in the middle of the thought. So now we've got to back up even further to get the context of what Scripture is saying because we want to follow what's the train of thought that Paul has. And so this is important for your own reading of Scripture. Always look for the connecting words and phrases in the Bible so you can figure out how the author is thinking, and more importantly, how the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to think. And now we're trying to track God's thoughts. We want to know where he's going and where he came from in terms of what the passage means. So here's what we're going to do. Paul tells us, or this beginning here, for this reason, at the beginning of verse 15, that tells us that Paul is connecting what he is about to say with what he just finished saying. Always look for those connections. Paul has just concluded the lengthy opening of the letter, verses 3 to 14. And then, beginning of the next thought is verses 11 to 12. In those two verses... Paul celebrates the salvation of the early followers of Jesus. And then in verses 13 and 14, right before our text, he celebrates the inclusion of the Ephesians in the company of the redeemed. Just look how he does this. Verse 11, he says, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." Okay, and then he says we again, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ could be for the praise of his glory. And then he switches from we to you. In verse 13, in him you also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory, verse 15. For this reason, verse 15, for this reason, So Paul is continuing the same flow of thought in verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because you have been included with us in this predestination in Christ, in this glory, in this inheritance, in the Holy Spirit, because you are there with us in the company of the redeemed, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. And here what we find in this passage is Paul the pastor. Paul who planted the church in Ephesus. Who for a couple of years pastored the church in Ephesus. Paul who was driven out of town by angry crowds who were sick and tired of Paul and his church in Ephesus. And they drove him away. Threatened his life, and now he can't go back, at least for a while. And so you can imagine Pastor Paul, church planner Paul, no social media, no telephones. How do you communicate? How do you know what's happening? You got to send somebody in. Go in, find the Christians, see how they're doing, tell them how I'm doing, come back and report. And he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Oh, you can imagine Paul sitting there day after day. I mean, you think the mail's slow here. It, right, it took a long time for somebody to walk or ride their horse or whatever all the way across. Who knows what kind of terrain. Get there, spend a couple days and days and days and days and days. And Paul sitting there worried about his church, just constantly thinking about them. You can imagine the messenger comes back and says, Paul, they're believing still. They're holding strong. They're trusting Christ. They're believing in the gospel that you preach. They remember you. They remember what you told them. The discipleship, it worked. They're still the God's people. They're still hanging on. And Paul says, oh, because I've heard of your faith. In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. You're believing the message and you're living it out. Ever since I received word that you're holding on, guys, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Just feel Paul's heart for his people. Oh, I, I heard that you guys are still walking with the Lord and it just overcome, I'm just overcome with joy. And I just, every day, I just, without ceasing, Just every day, I'm just thanking God. Thank you, God, for being so merciful and kind to the Ephesians. Just see him there next to his bed every night. Lord, thank you that you didn't abandon them, that you kept them safe, that they're still walking with you. And just see Paul in prayer. See him there. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul Constantly and consistently prays for the Ephesian church. What a model to follow. He prays specifically in verse 17 that God would give the Ephesians the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17. He says, I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that, So that, to the end that, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What a prayer. He didn't just give thanks, but he asked God to do something for his church. Father, give him the Holy Spirit. Just notice the Trinitarian shape of that prayer. He's praying to God, who is the God and Father of the Lord. Do you know the Lord has a God? (laughs) The Lord Jesus has a God because he has a Father. So that the God of the Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, or the glorious Father, we could translate it. Would give you the Holy Spirit. Notice that Trinitarian shape. Paul's already doing what the ser- where this sermon is going. He's going to God, and he never goes to God without Jesus. And he's asking for the Holy Spirit. What a model, not just of a person in prayer, but how to pray, to think about how you're praying God, Jesus, Spirit. God, Jesus, Spirit. And just wrap your prayers around that, because that's the model. We continue. When Paul asks, when he says that he's asking God to give them the Holy Spirit, he does not mean that they don't already have the Holy Spirit. And this is important. They got the Holy Spirit when they got saved. You know that from verse 13, which we read a minute ago. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they already have the Holy Spirit. He's not saying, Lord, they don't have your spirit. Please give it to them. They already have the spirit. This is a different kind of giving. This is a different request. What he's saying is he's asking God to supply the Ephesians with the gifts that come from the spirit. Wisdom. Revelation. Knowledge of God. You see that? He says, I ask in verse 17, give the spirit of wisdom. And of revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's what they need. They have the Spirit. They need wisdom that the Spirit gives. They need the revelation that the Spirit gives. They need knowledge of God from the Spirit. And here Paul has in mind Isaiah 11-2. This whole section, Paul is basically telling, telling us that he is praying Old Testament passages for the Ephesians. And I'll, I'll highlight what they are as we go. We don't have time to dig into the context and look up those verses, but note them down if you're taking notes and check out those verses uh, in your own time of study if you uh, reflect upon the sermon later. Paul's thinking here of Isaiah eleven two. The Spirit here is of these things because he imparts these things. He's the spirit of wisdom because he gives wisdom. He's the spirit of revelation because he gives revelation. He's the spirit of the knowledge of God because he gives the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul is praying for. Paul specifically wants the spirit to give the Ephesians his gifts, to do in them and for them what God sent him to do. And then he says specifically that he wants the spirit to open the eyes of their hearts so that they can perceive this divine wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Check out the beginning of verse 18, right? Give them the Spirit, verse 17. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul wants them to know God. And Paul wants his Ephesians to know the things of God. And seeing God and knowing God, not just with the head, not just intellectually, he wants the eyes of their hearts to be opened. He wants their hearts to be enlightened. Now, when your mind is enlightened, you grasp truth. When the lights go on upstairs, you begin to understand something. You begin to grasp truth. But what happens when the heart is enlightened? You begin to love Truth. The heart sees with love. The mind sees with light. Because it can see the truth. But the heart sees with love. That's what it means to be on fire. We use that language, being on fire for God. Fire is light and heat. Light up here, heat down here. And if you just have light, you don't have fire. If you just have heat, you don't have fire. But when the soul is aflame with faith in Christ, you have the light of truth and the flame of love united in one soul. That's what it means to be on fire for God. Don't bypass the truth. It's not just about feeling and passion. But don't bypass the feeling and passion either. What the mind sees, the heart ought to love. And Paul puts these together. The mind sees the glory of Christ and it begins to stir the heart. And when that happens, when the flames are stoked, all of a sudden the engine of your Christian life will begin to move down the track of obedience. So stoke that flame. It changes your will. It moves you to walk in obedience. And so sometimes we're not obedient or we feel spiritually dry or slack. It's because we're not close enough to the fire. So press in, Christian. Pray these prayers for yourself. Paul prayed them. You can take this and make this your prayer this week. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. There's even a song to go with it. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That's Paul's prayer. That's Paul's prayer. Seeing and knowing God with the heart means not only understanding God, but loving God. This is what he's just dying for. For the Ephesians. Now, in verses 18 through 20, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would teach the Ephesians three things in particular. So he's saying, God, give them the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of their heart, enlighten their hearts, so that three things will result. Three kinds of enlightenment or knowledge Will result. He's praying that the Spirit would teach the Ephesians three things in particular. The three things he wants them to know by the Spirit, verses 18 through 20. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's number one. That you can know the hope to which God has called you. Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He wants wants them to know their hope that that they've been called to. He wants them to know the glorious inheritance that is theirs one day. And then verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So, he wants them to know, Holy Spirit, please go to the Ephesians and teach them these three things. Convince their hearts of the truth of these things and move their hearts to love these three things. The hope that they've been called to by the gospel. The inheritance that is theirs by promise since they believe in the gospel and have been sealed by the Spirit. And third... Holy Spirit of God, teach them, convict and convince them of the power of God to raise and reward the dead. That's what the power does in verse 19. It says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. It's God's power to raise and reward the redeemed. God, teach them these things. Fill their hearts with knowledge and love of these things. That's Paul's prayer. Because that's what they need to survive as Christians in a hostile environment called Ephesus. When the pagans want them out and crushed, how do they sustain themselves? Paul says, I'm so thankful that you're holding on. How are they going to keep holding on? Holy Spirit of God, please open the eyes of their heart so they can know their hope that will not disappoint them, so they can know their inheritance that will never fail and cannot be taken away because it's kept in heaven, and help them to know your power that even when the assaults of the enemy come, you are the one who raises the dead and rewards on the last day. Ooh, that's the stuff we need, guys. That's the stuff we need. It's not just for the Ephesians. That's what we need. That's how we're gonna keep walking. That's how we're gonna keep going and keep growing. we got to know our hope in the gospel. Know your inheritance in Christ. Know the power of God that can overcome all anguish and all suffering and even death itself and can raise you and seat you with Christ on the last day in glory. What a hope you've been called to. What an inheritance is in your name. What an unshakable power God has to guarantee all his promises to you. Amazing. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying for these things because the Ephesians probably don't have a Bible. You ever think about that? They couldn't have had a Bible because they just got the letter of the Ephesians, and and that letter's part of the Bible. So they don't have a Bible. Now, maybe they have access to the Old Testament if they have access to a synagogue. You can't just go to you know, Barnes and Noble of Ephesus and get a Bible. Where's the only Bible? It's in the synagogue because it's, it's Jewish scripture. And pagans don't have Bibles. Only the Jews had Bibles. So if you want the Bible, you got to be in a synagogue. Well, what if the Jews ran them out of the synagogue? No Bible. Maybe they could find a really wealthy patron who could smuggle a Torah scroll out and pay somebody to meticulously copy it by hand. No printing press. Any copy of the scriptures you had was by hand. So maybe they had access to a piece of scripture because you couldn't fit it all in one scroll. It's way too much. Old Testament's huge. Couldn't fit it all in one scroll. Books hadn't been invented yet. Or if they had, not everybody had one. So what do they do? They can't open the scriptures. So Paul is pleading for more of the Holy Spirit to do what scripture does for us now. By the Spirit's help, of course. Now we have the Word of God in front of us, and the Spirit can do these things through the Word, not just zap our souls, (laughs) but go through Scripture. But the Ephesians didn't have access like that. They needed the Spirit to teach them these things. They needed the Holy Spirit to teach them these things. And what they needed to know was the benefits of redemption that Christ had purchased for them. And that's what he had purchased. Hope, inheritance, resurrection, and reward. They needed to know these things, and they needed the Holy Spirit to teach them. And this actually brings us finally now to the two points we want to make today. To see it in context is important. We want to see who is the only mediator between God and man. Where do these benefits of redemption come from? Where are they? Who has them? How do you get them? Just like the Ephesians couldn't access a a copy of the Old Testament unless they could get into a synagogue and convince a rabbi or somebody to let them read it or make a copy. They could only get it in one place, the synagogue. Where are your benefits of redemption, your salvation, the, the hope, the inheritance, the resurrection? Where are these things? Where do you get them? Who mediates them to you? That's the question. Paul puts these things together, verses 19 and 20. He says he wants them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. What God did in Christ, that's the gospel. For Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. What God accomplished by his power in Christ is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. What God accomplished in Christ in the gospel, he is also able to accomplish in us as well. And how does he do that? God takes the redemption of Christ and applies it to us in Christ and nowhere else. Nowhere else. It says here that he... "...raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." But remember two weeks ago, Sola Gratia, we read this in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says in verses 5 and 6, "...when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, in union with him, by grace you have been saved." And it says in verse 6 of chapter 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So what God did for Jesus in chapter 1, he has done for us who are saved in chapter 2. Which means what God accomplishes in Christ, he applies to us in Christ by faith. Your faith is what gets you access to Jesus, connects you with him, unites you to him. And once you're in Christ, all of God's redemption, all that grace, all that salvation, all the promises, the hope, the inheritance, the world to come, it's all yours, but it's only yours in Christ. And if you go anywhere else, you're never going to get it. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Verse 7 of chapter 1, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see Paul's answer to our question of who's the only mediator between God and man? It's just Christ, solus Christus. It's just the Lord Jesus. And if there was any doubt left, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, five, and six, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So case closed. That's why you're Protestant. Biblical Christianity says Christ is the only mediator between God and man. So what, what does this do for you as an individual Christian? How does this affect you personally? Two things you can do with this in your Christian life. Two important things. This, this, will be a, this will apply. Not every application applies first thing Monday morning. This one will. This is a Tuesday afternoon <laughs> application. Daily application. I've got two of them. First, you must always go through Christ to get to God. Don't go to God Any other way, don't cross any other bridge, don't take any other lane, the only access point to God is Jesus. That's what it means to be the mediator. Everything, Christian, get this, everything that you bring to God and everything you do for God must pass through the mediation of Christ or God will not accept it. Try to have faith in God without Jesus. Bypass Jesus and just go to God. Unacceptable. Fellowship with God without Jesus, impossible. Worshiping God without Jesus, unthinkable. Praying to God without Jesus, useless. Repenting to God without Jesus, wasted time. Obeying God without Jesus, all our works are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Serving God in the church or helping other people, being a good person, without Jesus? What's the point? Because outside Jesus, there's nothing but sin and unworthiness and damnation. Just our wretchedness apart from the Savior. So if you try to go to God without Jesus, you will always fall short. Everything has to go through Jesus. Everything must pass from you to God through your mediator, Christ alone, or it will always fall short. So if you plan on praying in the morning, even if it's five seconds, Lord, thank you for letting me get up today and thank you for my job or whatever, and then off you go. Okay, don't do it without Jesus. Don't do it without Jesus. Second thing you can do, you can use this for, second application. Everything that God promises to you or provides for you must also pass through Christ or you have no access to it. Remember I said it's a two-way street. So everything from you to God has to go through Jesus or it won't arrive. And everything that God has for you also has to pass through Jesus or you can't get it. You can't access it. All of God's grace, all of his blessings, favor, fellowship, promises, and provisions, they're only available in Christ by faith. It's like in the book of Genesis when when Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all his vast supplies of grain. When the Egyptians cried out to Pharaoh in a severe famine for bread, Pharaoh said, Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Had the people looked anywhere else but Joseph, they would have starved to death in that famine. They had no recourse and no resource apart from the supplies of grain that Joseph had under his command. Pharaoh said, Go to Joseph. And in the same way, God has vast supplies of grace And he has set the Lord Jesus over all his storehouses. And if you look to any other, you will perish in your sins. Christ alone oversees the dispensaries of eternal redemption. When you cry out to God for grace or mercy or provision or blessing or any other gift he has promised to you in his word, he will always say, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Christ alone is the only mediator between God and man. Now, the, la- the second point we pass over quickly so we can get to the conclusion of Christ as the head of the church. But you can't ignore point two entirely. So let me just say a brief word about it because it's the foundation of Christ's headship over the church. Before Christ is appointed the head of the church, he is first enthroned as king of the ages, verses 20 and 21. It says, the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here, Paul describes Christ in his office as king. This is a messianic office that God has set aside for his son in his role as Messiah. Paul has in mind two texts in particular from the Old Testament, specifically from the Psalms. He has Psalm 2, our Old Testament reading from this morning. And he also has Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is what it means to be a Lord, to be the Lord Jesus. It means Jesus in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It means Philippians 2, 9 to 11, God highly exalted him and sat him at his right hand so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's given him the name that is above every name. So it means... To be king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation nineteen sixteen. You know what a king of kings is? That's a king who's the king over all the other kings. All the other nations that have their own kings, you're the king of them. King of kings. That's the Roman emperor. That's an emperor who has an empire made up of all the other kingdoms that he owns and conquered and rules. For him to be the king of all the kings and the lord of all the lords, both in heaven and on earth, means that Christ is the supreme emperor of heaven and earth. He is the lord of all creation, the ruler of the whole cosmos in this age and in the age to come. The kingdom here and the kingdom that's coming. He rules and reigns without rival over all things because everything was made Through him and for him. It's his inheritance. Ask of me, Psalm 2, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. It's all his. He is the king of the ages. And that means that just as God has placed Jesus in charge of dispensing all of his grace, he's also placed Jesus in charge of dispensing his divine sovereign providence. God has given to the risen and exalted Jesus at his right hand the fullness of his own divine sovereignty. Christ has been authorized and empowered by God to govern the universe with the very power and authority and sovereignty of God so that not a blade of grass moves in the breeze without the say-so of King Jesus. Christ alone has ultimate authority over all things. And this brings us to the final point. If Christ alone is the king of the ages, who else but Christ could be the head of the church? (laughs) What what sense would it make to say Jesus is the king of all the cosmos, the whole universe, and the billions upon billions of stars, and he calls them all by name, and and we're less than nothing compared to him. He's He's the head of everything, but not the church? Somebody else rules the church? You know, me and me and uh, Israel went to a conference at Westminster Seminary a uh, couple of uh, this past week, and we were laughing because I was telling about the, the main speaker, Kevin DeYoung, who's a professor at RTS, the seminary I went to, who's one of my teachers. And the president of the seminary, Dr. Kruger, is DeYoung's boss, right? He's the president of the seminary. He is Kevin DeYoung's boss, but Kruger goes to the church that Kevin DeYoung pastors. So DeYoung is his pastor. Aha! So how does that work? You know? Do I get a raise or no communion? Or, you know, how do you... How, like, you know, how do, how do they negotiate that? One's in charge in this context, in the seminary, and then they have to switch when you go to church. Well, that's kind of confusing. Is that what Jesus does? I'm the king of everything, except when I go to church, and then I listen to somebody else. Somebody else is in charge. Huh? This doesn't make a lick of sense. No, if he's the head of everything, the church is included. There's no power struggle. There's no question of, you know, who's, who's in charge here, who, who gets the final say. It's just Christ is in charge of it all. And Paul concludes the passage in verses 22 to 23, and he makes this point. He says, he put God put all things under Christ's feet... And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul, once again, he's thinking of the Psalms. This time, Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. Notice the connection to the previous point. God gave Christ as the head over all things for the church. He alone is head of everything, and this includes the church. But he's also the head of all things to the church or for the church, so that Jesus exercises a special care and a special providence over his church as one who cares especially for his own body. Ephesians 5, 29 and 30. Now, interestingly, Puritan preacher Thomas Manton preached a sermon on this topic and gave a very interesting illustration, or a, made a very interesting argument. He said that the church is not the body of anyone but Christ. And so, only Christ could be the head. Right? That's just, that's just obvious, right? To be the head means the body belongs to you, or you're not its head. But where in Scripture is the church the body of anybody but Christ? For example, the Pope. Roman Catholicism says the Pope is the head of the church. But is the church the body of the Pope? Is there any hint in Scripture that that could possibly be the case? No, the church is the body of its head, and the church is only the body of Christ. Christ alone is the head of the church. Christ alone has ultimate power and authority, and that includes our church. Christ alone has ultimate authority. He is our ultimate preacher in this church. And if my word isn't his word, don't listen to it. He is the ultimate pastor of this church. He cares for his flock. He's the chief shepherd, Peter says. He is the ultimate minister in this church. When I dispense the word of God, Christ is the one who empowers that word to do its work. When we, when we hand out the elements of communion, Christ is the one serving you his benefits, his grace and redemption. We are his instruments, instruments that he plays his music through, things that he uses. But in our church, he is the head, and from the head comes all the nourishment, all the growth, all the thinking. He does, the head does the thinking and the talking. <laughs> He directs the body. He tells us what we look at and where we go and what we do. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is everything, verse 23. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christian, Christ is your all. Don't go to God without him. Christ is the only mediator. Christ alone and Christ alone is the only head of his church. Solus. Christus. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory and thanks for Christ, and we thank you that in him we have the fullness that makes us complete. Give us the Holy Spirit, like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, to open the eyes of our hearts, to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to bow the knee to Jesus, to worship Jesus, to love Jesus for the hope of our calling that he guarantees, for the inheritance that he has purchased and is holding and waiting for us and for the power of salvation in him that can even raise us from the dead like he was and can seat us in heavenly places forever and ever. Thank you that in Christ we have all we need. May we look to no other. He is our only mediator. He is our only head. We bow to none but him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.